Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. to say to us, give us the faith to believe and the will to obey. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to talk to you today about suffering and salvation. Suffering and salvation is the title of my message. And um, I want to turn your attention to that reading from 1 Peter our epistle reading this morning as we look at this theme of suffering and salvation. Now, many Christians today are suffering. They are suffering for their faith. And many Christians today, if they're not suffering today, are at risk of suffering tomorrow. That's according to a a new survey by a ministry called Open Doors. This ministry supports persecuted Christians throughout the world. And Open Door says that uh, worldwide, one in seven Christians, one in seven are at high or extreme risk for their faith today. They define persecution not just as violence or imprisonment, but, but harassment and hostility because one identifies as a Christian. But, In this survey, it says physical persecution is increasing in some parts of the world today. Maybe you remember uh, the terrible event that happened uh, last year at Christmas time called the Christmas Massacre in Nigeria. Um, Fulani Muslim herdsmen went into Christian villages in a region of Nigeria, 20 Christian villages, killing almost 200 Christians there, and uh, not to go into any of the terrible details, but it was uh, involving fire and machetes, leaving behind burnt bodies and uh, maimed bodies in burnt buildings. And many in the mainstream media underplayed the religious uh, impulse behind those attacks, the religious motive, but the chairman of the Christian Association in Nigeria, in that region of Nigeria, he said that before the attacks happened, the terrorists sent letters into some of these villages and said, you will not celebrate Christmas this year. The religious motive was clear. Well, why do I bring this up, uh, this, this issue of suffering for Christ today? Well, as much as it pains us to see people persecuted for their faith, Suffering for Christ has always been part of what it means to follow Christ. Christ suffered for us, and we're called to take up our cross and follow him. And that's what the Apostle Peter is reminding the the Christians in Asia Minor, the early church in our reading today. Right there from the start, he says, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. They were undergoing suffering, persecution. He's saying, Christ himself also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What a wonderful statement of what the cross is all about. Christ the righteous one, dying for those of us, who are unrighteous, which is 
all of us. Why? In order to bring us to God. I want you to know this morning, if you're here today and you feel unrighteous, I have good news. We're all unrighteous. And God, in his mercy and grace, sent his son, the righteous one, to die for your sins in order to bring you to fellowship with God, who is righteous. Trust in what God has done to make you righteous in his sight. But really what Peter is is getting at here is um, he's using Jesus' suffering as an inspiration and an example for those who are facing suffering as followers of Christ. This passage is a tricky passage. There's a, a lot of detail in here that's difficult to understand. I kind of compare it to a thicket. You know, some of these passages in the New Testament, like going into a thicket, and you can get hung up in, in these things and tangled up, and, and I could get tangled up in trying to understand all this and explain it uh, to you this morning. But there, there is enough clear ground to get us through to the point that Peter is making. We'll touch on some of those thickets and hopefully not get caught up for too long. But the, the point is, is clear. Peter's main point is, yes, following Christ means suffering like Christ, but it also means sharing in the victory of Christ. Christ suffered, verse 18, but then look at verse 22. He has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So, yes, we follow Christ to the cross, but that's not the final destination. We will be where Christ is, in heaven, at the right hand of the Father. We will be with him in the presence of God for eternity. And so Peter wants to encourage Christians as they stand firm for Christ in the midst of a hostile world. He doesn't want Christians to court suffering. He doesn't want Christians to be antagonistic towards non-Christians. We are strangers in the world. He begins this letter, 1 Peter identifying Christians as exiles or aliens or strangers. We are strangers in the world. We, we belong to a different order. We have different values. Yes, we are exiles. We're strangers in the world, but we're to work for the good of the world. And so I'm going to have to do a little uh, background here on this passage, kind of contextualizing. Bear with me as, as, I, as I try to frame this passage. I think it'll help make more sense of it. So, first of all, in, in the verses leading up to this section in chapter 2, Peter has been exhorting Christians to be good citizens. To be good citizens. He, he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God and honor the emperor. So that's chapter 2. Uh, and then chapter 3, he begins by talking about how Christians can have a good reputation among outsiders in the way that they treat their family and their work. He warns Christians as he gets, as we get closer to this passage, he warns Christians about being vengeful and taking revenge. 
if people have reviled you, if people have bad-mouthed you, if people have bullied you, you're not to revile them. You're not to respond in kind. Well, then what are we to do, Apostle Peter, if people treat us this way? He, he recalls the ethic of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says you're to bless them. You're to bless those who revile you, to bless those who curse you. You have been called, Christian, to be a blessing in the world. Even when things are going bad, God's call for Christians is for us to be good and to do good and to bless people around us. This is important for us to remember in our post-Christian, increasingly hostile culture, a culture that's increasingly hostile to many elements of the Christian faith. How are we to respond to this? Well, we're not to withdraw from the world. We're not to become antagonistic toward the world. We're called to be a blessing to the world. I think it's safe to say that Christians have work to do in the area of reputation repair. There's been a lot of scandals. There's been a lot of twisting of the Christian message. Clergy especially have work to do when it comes to repairing the reputation of the church. We suffer from a, a great loss of reputation with outsiders because of self-inflicted wounds and these terrible scandals that we're all familiar with. I saw a poll recently that um, was talking about how citizens in the United States think about different professions. And clergy, it was, a, it, was a, it was a poll about trust. And clergy were at the bottom of the list, just above journalists and politicians. So we have that going for us. <laughs> Not saying much, maybe. Number one on that list was nurses. So my wife is a nurse. So I can say to people, yes, I'm a pastor, but my wife is a nurse. <laughs> They're the most trusted profession in the, in the United States. So we have, we have some work to do when it comes to our reputation. We're to, to be known as good citizens, people who bring a blessing into the world, people who are not caught up in reviling and name-calling and angry finger-pointing. But Peter's not naive. Even though we're called to do this, even though we're called to be good citizens, to be a blessing, we still might be persecuted, persecuted for doing good persecuted for living the Christian life. And so Peter talks about that. Again, just before we get to our passage that's listed in the bulletin, in 3, 16 and 17, 1 Peter 3, verses 16 and 17, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, but when this happens to you, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer doing good than to do evil, if it should be the will of God for you to suffer. So this is a kind of suffering for Christ. People may revile you. That comes from living for Christ. And, and then in chapter 4, he touches on this same thing. See, this is sandwiched between two passages 
dealing with the suffering that can come against a Christian for living a Christian life. So in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says this, The time is past for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. He says they're surprised when you don't join in with them in their flood. Listen to this image. Their, their flood of debauchery. They're surprised that you don't join in with them and they malign you. They verbally abuse you for it. In other words, he's saying, listen, if you don't do what non-Christians do, if you don't live like they live, if you don't party like they party, if you don't worship their idols, then they may ridicule you and badmouth you and exclude you. That's a kind of suffering. It's not certainly not at the same level of our brothers and sisters who are suffering physically for Christ. It's what you might call a, a soft form of, of persecution. But it is a reality, and, and we're called to stand firm in the midst of this reality and not compromise because these things might come against us. I remember years ago talking to a Christian man who was involved in the construction business, and he was looking to break into a supervisory role. And uh, he had gone back to school and got a degree so that he could become a supervisor, and he's working in kind of a big firm in a big city. And he said that there was uh, a group of men, kind of the decision makers, who were known to, once in a while, take off on the weekends, leave their wives and families behind and, and go party. And uh, even go to another country. They would go down to Mexico and they would kind of let loose. And this was part of the culture there. And here this guy wanted to kind of break into this inner circle. But when they invited him to go do that, to leave his wife and family and be involved in that, he said, I can't do that. You know, I, I'm just not going to engage in those kinds of things. And so he was excluded from that, from that inner circle. That can happen. As we take a stand for Christ. I mean, it, it's something that every Christian teenager has to wrestle with, right? The, the, the peer pressure that can, that can come in high school or, or college. The peer pressure, the desire to want to fit in, to look cool and to not be excluded. The peer pressure to join the crowd. And we know that there are Christians today who they're fighting legal battles to hang on to their, their businesses or positions because they're not really willing to bow down to the idols of this age, the idols around sexuality and gender, and they're having to fight for their businesses and their position. Suffering for Christ. It, it means risk reputation, not joining the crowds. It means resisting the idols of our age, resisting the sin that other people so readily indulge in, and then they will look down upon you if you don't indulge in those kinds of things. Who do you think you are? More holier than thou? And so we have to be willing to stand in the midst of that kind of pressure. Well, what will help us do that? What will help a Christian stand? Peter wants us to keep in mind two events or Two realities. And here we finally get to the passage at hand. Two realities, two events that have to do with spiritual realities that he wants his readers to remember. First of all, the victory of Christ over evil. And secondly, 
our identity as baptized followers of Christ. So first of all, Jesus' victory over evil. And here we get into the thicket I mentioned earlier. Because in verse 19, Peter writes that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. What in the world is the apostle talking about? Well, you can study this. A good study Bible will give you the three main options that interpreters through the centuries have uh, have put forward to make sense of this passage. And I'm not going to talk about all three interpretations uh, this, this morning. But what I want to do is talk about what I think for a minute, and which I think represents the modern consensus on this. First of all, uh, look at verse 19 again when it says, He proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So the first kind of data point is this, that almost everywhere you have spirits in the New Testament, it's referring to demonic spirits, evil spirits, or fallen angels. So that's data point number one. And then combine that with verse 22. Look down there, if you would, that Jesus, after his resurrection and ascension, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Everywhere in the New Testament you see authorities and powers. It is referring to demonic spirits, evil spirits. And he's saying that now, because of Jesus' ascension and resurrection, they've been subjected to him. He is Lord of all. And so I take this to mean that this is a picture of Jesus after his uh, death and perhaps after his resurrection, proclaiming his victory over powers of darkness in the spiritual realm. It is difficult to interpret. It is mysterious, but I think that is what... Peter is getting at. Jesus is not preaching to convert these spirits. He's declaring his victory over these evil spirits. It's kind of like maybe a football team after the game going with the trophy to the losing team and kind of celebrating in their face. Or maybe it's it's more like, um, you know, an invading army going into territory where there's been an evil dictator and they topple the statue of that dictator and that's a signal to the dictator that his days are numbered. Maybe some of you remember an image back during the Gulf War where they toppled the statue of Saddam Hussein. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think what what uh, what Peter is referring to is the victory of Christ over evil. And Peter's point here is to encourage Christians who are suffering some kind of resistance, some kind of persecution. This is who you belong to, Christ the victor. Yes, there are forces of evil. Yes, there are people who persecute. Yes, there is tension. But you are united by faith to Christ the victor who stands over these powers of evil and darkness. And so stand firm, hold your head high, resist the devil, he says later on, and remember that sharing in his victory is part of belonging to Christ. 
Remember that. The second event that he wants us to hang on to is, uh, is our baptism. He wants us to recall our baptism. It's fascinating, isn't it, how he draws a correspondence to the floodwaters in Noah's day and our baptism, the waters of baptism. Uh, he says that the, um, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were safely brought through water, and baptism corresponds to this. You know, the flood, of course, was God's judgment against sin and evil in the world, and, and those floodwaters brought judgment, but those same floodwaters saved Noah and his family. The, these floodwaters lifted the ark, and so this remnant was saved for a new beginning, a new world, a new creation. The, the, the Noah and his family, these eight people, were uh, saved by the mercy of God in the context of the judgment of God. And, and we need to remember that today, friends. I, I don't know how many times I've heard it, especially from older saints. They say, man, the world is just so crazy, and, and right is wrong, and wrong is right, and I never thought I'd see it this way. We need to remember that our God is a God of new beginnings. That God, even in the midst of judgment, is doing a saving work. And that the church that we're part of, we're called to be part of this remnant and to offer this grace of salvation to other people, even in the midst of darkness and suffering and pain. And so Peter says, now, what happened to Noah uh, corresponds to baptism, which saves you. Now, it's not that baptism in and of itself saves people in some sort of magical mystical or mechanical way because he says it's not like the removal of dirt from a body it's not like an automatic sort of washing that takes place in a mechanical way but baptism is saving when it's combined with this look at what he says an appeal to god for a good conscience or that could be translated appeal could be translated a pledge to God for a good conscience. This word that's translated pledge, it's a, in Greek, it's a technical term for making a contract. And so here, here's how I want you to understand this. This is the way I, I believe that we should in Scripture, and certainly our Anglican tradition would have us understand baptism. In baptism, God makes promises to us. And he calls us into his family. He calls us to be part of this new world, this new creation. And the baptismal candidate, if, if he or she's old enough, she, he or she's going to answer these promises that God makes to them by faith. They're going to make a pledge of faith. And so baptism is like entering into this contract, or better yet, the biblical word is covenant, Baptism is like entering into this covenant relationship with God, a covenant that is bound together by promises. God makes promises to us, and we respond by faith in his, in his promises. Now, when an infant is baptized, they're brought into the covenant family. They're given the covenant sign of baptism, just as males in the Old Covenant, male infants were given the covenant sign in the Old Testament. Of circumcision, So we give the covenant sign to our children of baptism. But then when they get to an age where they're responsible 
they are to make their pledge, they are to put their faith in the promises that God has given them. But I wonder if you see what Peter is up to here. These Christians were persecuted, reviled, looked down upon. The pressure was on them to conform. And he's saying, I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember your baptismal identity. I want you to remember God's promises to you and your pledge to him, your commitment to him. Remember that you belong to a new order, a new world, a new creation. This is an issue, friends, of identity. Remember your baptism. It's an issue of identity, which is the issue of our day. Who are you? Who says who you are? Are you the one who's determining who you are? Or is God the creator? It's an issue of identity. I read something interesting this week. At least I found it interesting. This philosopher named Paul Ricori talks about different kinds of identity. He says one kind of identity is permanent identity. This is identity that does not change over time. And this is not the category that we fall into as human beings, but objects are kind of like this. Like this, this glass, which has been sitting here for about 12 years. Well, not every day, but every Sunday, this glass is here for 12 years. It's been here since I've been here. It's never changed. Permanence through time. The identity of this glass has never changed. <laughs> now, things can happen where it does change. It could shatter, it could ship. But so far, it's held together just fine. That's not like us. We change over time. I mean, obviously, we change over time. Scientists, I've read, say that the cells of our bodies change over time. Uh, we get weaker, we get thinner, or fatter, or we lose hair. Over time, we change. So what is it that constitutes our identity? Well, Paul records, as this, this philosopher says, it's not permanence through time, it's constancy through time. Constancy, which is defined by our commitments, by the promises we make. That's what defines who we are through time. What commitments are we making? What promises are we keeping? This, of course, is what holds marriages together through circumstances and difficulty. That promise. That is what structures our identity. It's promises made and promises kept, no matter the changing circumstances, no matter the pressure. That's what makes us who we are. And I think that fits well with a biblical view of identity. God is a promise-keeping God. His character does not change. He fulfills His promises over time. He's raised Christ from the dead, which is a kind of down payment, a a, a, a preview of the ultimate promise of a new heaven and a new earth. He's a promise-keeping God. He binds us to Him with covenant promises, and He calls us to respond in faith, in commitment to Him. This is what our baptismal identity is about. It's not that our commitment saves us. It's that God saves us as we put our faith in what He has done in Christ, Jesus Christ is the righteous one who died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Our baptism marks us as people of God's promise, of God's new creation. Maybe one application of this, friends, 
is to be baptized if you haven't been baptized. Sometimes I've dealt with people who haven't been baptized. They've made a Christian commitment, but for various reasons, they haven't taken the step of being baptized. There was one young lady who was from a Hindu background, and she knew that in order to be baptized, or if she was baptized, that was going to represent a a possible break with her family. So she wrestled with that. They understood what baptismal identity was. I belong to Christ. So if you haven't been baptized, maybe this is one application. Easter Vigil uh, is a great time to be baptized. And Easter Vigil is also a great time to renew your baptism. And maybe there's somebody here today who's been kind of moving away from God, and you feel God is calling you to a recommitment to Him. To renew your baptism, we have a liturgy for this, is to receive the promises of God made afresh, and to make a fresh commitment to Him in the presence of the community. And we can do that on Easter Vigil too. That would be a glorious time to renew your commitment to God. I encourage you to think about that. In a post-Christian world, what is it that's holding you together? What is at the core of your identity? As you change and as the world change, is it the promises of God to you and your faith in those promises? Friends, by God's grace, He is doing a new work. He is bringing about a new creation in Christ. He is still gathering, like he did with Noah, a remnant to be saved. Suffering for Christ is part of what it means to follow him. But that's not the end of the story. Because we follow Christ, who defeated the powers of darkness, and is now in heaven, so that we might be where he is. Let's hang on to these promises and this hope. Amen. Lord, help us to do just that. Help us to, by your working of your Spirit, because apart from your Spirit, apart from your work, our faith is weak. In fact, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. But you can make us alive through Christ by the work of the Spirit. And so, increase our faith in these truths that you gave your Apostle, Apostle Peter, and help us to grow in these things and stand firm in our faith for the glory of Christ all of our days. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.